Well, good morning. I'm glad to join you today, even if Chris's plans fell apart. So there are events that take place in history that are seemingly small, little events, but they have a, an outsized impact upon the world. You know, some small little event ends up changing the course of history. Think for an example, uh, 108 years ago, there was this married couple, Franz and Sophie, and they decide they're going to go visit the, the capital city of Serbia, which was Sarajevo. While they're there, they're driving in their car, get stuck in a little bit of traffic. This young man runs up to their car, shoots Sophie. Franz tries to protect her. He shoots Franz, and he dies. Because of this assassination of the Archduke of Hungary, or Austria, Franz Ferdinand, a little over a month later, the world would fracture in half. They would end up splitting into the central powers, Austria, Germany, the Ottoman Empire, Bulgaria. And on the other side, you'd have France, Russia, Great Britain. Eventually, the U.S. would be dragged into it. Because the U.S. gets dragged into it, the, the army for the, the U.S. needs more people, so they establish uh, African-American troops, which they didn't really have before that, but these African-American battle troops, which would ultimately lead in the late 40s to the desegregation of the military, one of the first victories of the civil rights movement. In the war, there would be this Austrian soldier fighting for Germany, and he would buy into this propaganda of World War I. And afterwards, with the peace treaty, which was harsh economically and didn't treat Germany or Austria well. And he would leverage that and become the leader of Germany. And this young soldier, Adolf Hitler, would then start World War II, leading to one of the greatest atrocities in all of mankind. Because of World War I and World War II, theologians who had pretty much slid into this camp of what you would call post-millennialism, which was that the world was getting better. It had started with abolition of slavery, you know, and they said, everybody's going to become a Christian. And once everybody becomes a Christian and the world reaches kind of a perfection, then Christ will return and will enter the eternal state. Well, World War I, followed closely by World War II, pretty much stamped out that idea and crushed that theology. And no longer since that point is it even a you know, it doesn't even get into second place in its theological order. So one little event, this assassination of this man, would change the course of countries. Countries that were around before that don't even exist anymore. New countries would come from it. It would change the course of theology. It would change the course of the civil rights movement. Changed all of history. But as large of an impact as that little event had, there are other events prior to that that had an even larger impact upon the world. One of those we find recorded within Scripture. You turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And, and this is 
if not one of the largest events within history. It ranks within the top five easily, top three. In Genesis chapter 12, we see God come to this shepherd and start to have a discussion with him. Genesis chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 1. It says, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. And and here in this one little event of Yahweh, of God coming down and having a discussion with this man, Abram, he institutes what, what we now call the Abrahamic covenant. And in there, God makes these promises to Abram. And they're not conditional. They're these unconditional promises to Abram. Understand, Abram, I'm going to do three things for you. I'm going to give you land. Go to your, leave your father's house. Go to the land that I'm going to show you. So I'm going to give you this promised land. Two, I'm going to give you lots of offspring, lots of children. I'm going to make you into a great nation. This one man and his wife is going to become a great nation. And then thirdly, you're going to have blessings. And not just blessings for you and your family, he says, but look at it. He says, I'm going to bless the entire world through your family. And this is my promise, my covenant to you, Abram. So then, as we move forward in history, Abram listens to to Yahweh, and he goes to the promised land, and he occupies the land, but he doesn't fully occupy the land. He doesn't control all of the, the land that was promised to him. And he dies before any of these things really are completely fulfilled. You know, he makes it to the land. He, he starts to have a bunch of kids. Uh, there's some blessings, but it's not the scale that God talked about here in Genesis chapter 12. And as they go on, his offspring reside and they start to to multiply, and eventually they're forced to leave their promised land, and they have to go to Egypt. They're fleeing a famine, and we know the story, Joseph, his brothers, and so they end up in Egypt to to survive this famine, and they end up kind of settling there in Egypt, and eventually over the years, they become enslaved in Egypt. But while they're enslaved, a funny thing happens. They keep growing and growing and growing to the point where they're essentially a nation without a land, a nation without a name, a nation without laws or rules. They're a nation that's enslaved within Egypt. And so they cry out to God, what about the promises you made to our father Abram? And so God raises up a man, Moses, and Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. And so at this point, God has 
sort of fulfilled one part of that Abrahamic covenant. He's made them into this nation. There's a lot of people at this point. You know, it's not 25 people leaving Egypt. It's millions of people leaving Egypt. And so they go, they stop for a minute at Mount Sinai. Moses receives the law and they establish themselves really as an official nation. They received law, order, with God as their king, as their leader. And they move on from there to go take the promised land. And they lived happily ever after, right? No, unfortunately not. They reach the promised land not long after they leave Egypt, are rescued out of Egypt, and they send some spies into the land. And the spies go in, and they come back, and the report from all but two spies is, there's just no way we can do this. The people are too big. It's an impossibility. These other two spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, wait a minute. Were any of you paying attention to what just happened? We were enslaved in Egypt, and he brought us through the sea and takes us to a mountain, brings down the law to us. You saw everything that went on. Now we're here. He said he's going to give us the promised land. We can take it. But everybody says, no, they're afraid. And so God says, fine. Your generation is not going to enter the land then. All of you, except for Joshua and Caleb, are going to die before you go to the land. And so then they take a detour, a 40-year detour through the wilderness. And they wander around the wilderness. And then they finally come back to the promised land. And what's the event that brings them to that? Turn with me to our passage for today. It's going to be Joshua chapter 1. And in Joshua chapter 1, we pick up the story where now most of the generation has died away. There was one left, Moses, and Moses passes away at the end of Deuteronomy, immediately preceding this. And Joshua picks up the narrative right from Deuteronomy. And it says, and, in chapter 1, verse 1, and after the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, the Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So God says, I made a promise that none of this generation was going to go in. Moses fails while they're wandering, so he doesn't get to go in. So God's waiting. Finally, Moses, the last one dies. And now he says, I'm ready to fulfill the next part of my covenant. We're going to go take the land. So now go to the land. And we're going to see three things as we go through this passage. And, and if you've ever heard a sermon on, on Joshua chapter 1, often people will go and they'll, they'll look at the idea of be courageous and strong, and they'll do a whole sermon about courage and strength and, you know, how you should be courageous. And it talks about courage and strength in here. But, you know, the courage and strength are not the, the point, are not the lesson of this passage. The courage and the strength 
are really the results of what God is teaching the people in this passage. And what we're going to see is that, one, he's going to say to them that you need to be unified with me. You need to be unified with Yahweh. Not only that, but you also need to be unified with my word. You need to hear my word, and you need to be unified with that. And then lastly, I want you to be unified with each other. I want you to be unified with Yahweh's people. And so these three lessons, God is going to instill in Joshua to then pass on to the people of Israel. So let's go ahead and look at the first one, starting with this death of Moses and this rise of Joshua. It says, and after the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people. And look what he says. Into the land that I am giving to them. You're going to go into the land that I am giving to them. He doesn't say they're going to go into the land that's owed to them. They're going to go into the land that they're going to conquer. They're going to go into the land uh, and battle and fight for it. They're going to go into the land that I am going to essentially give to them. So if you want the land, you have to be with me because I'm the one that's going to give it to you. He continues in verse 3. He says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So he establishes right at the very beginning, I want you to go take the land. You're going to go into the land and you're going to receive this land. Why? Because I promised it to you. I promised that you were going to get it. You would have had it a lot earlier than now if you had been obedient, but I'm still giving it to you. You haven't lost your your right to it, your claim to it. I'm still going to give it to you, but you have to be unified with me. You're not conquering it under your own power. You're not conquering it because you're great and mighty. You're conquering it because I'm leading you, because you're with me because you're unified with me. And if you look at Israel and and you walk through the history of Israel, every time that Israel goes wrong is when they divide from God. It's when they they look at God and they say, oh, we know better. We want a king. You have a king. His name's Yahweh. No, no, we want a king like everybody else has. We know better. You know, we understand Yahweh's been working this way up to this point, and when we obey, it's been good, but we know better. When they separate and they're not unified with Yahweh, things turn out poorly. So 
that's great. You say, Jamie, that's wonderful. Israel should have been unified with Yahweh. But what does that have to do with us? This is Old Testament, right? I mean, this is a book to Israel, a law to Israel. We're not bound by the Old Testament law. But you look in Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, and Paul says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what can man do to me. So when Paul wants to encourage the church, or the author of Hebrews, whoever you think it is, when he wants to encourage the church, where does he turn? He turns back to Joshua, where God told Joshua and Israel, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he's going to make this assurance to, to Joshua and Israel throughout this entire book of Joshua. He's going to do it in chapter 2, 3, 10, 4, 6, uh, all the way through. He keeps repeating it over and over and over again. Trust in me, follow me, be unified with me, and things will turn out well. And so we're told the same thing. As the church, as Christians today, our confidence, our hope relies in the fact that we're unified with Yahweh. We're unified with His Son Christ. We're unified with the God that created the earth, that spoke it into existence, that made a promise to a shepherd named Abram, who brought him to a promised land, who brought his family out of slavery and helped them conquer a land. That's the same God that we worship today. And so now we can look back and we can see his promise-keeping nature. So then when he says to us, well, believe in the sacrifice that my son makes for you. Have faith in him. We can believe in that. We can believe in the new covenant because we've seen how Yahweh has fulfilled the old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. So he continues. And he starts to look at be unified with me. And then he moves on to this idea of being unified with his word, be unified with Yahweh's word. And says in verse 6, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left hand, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success." 
Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. So he says to to Joshua, be unified with me. You're following me. Understand who's in charge here. I've raised you up, Joshua, but you're just a figurehead. You're just my spokesperson to guide them. And what are you guiding them with? With my word. Listen to my word. You know, if we look at Joshua, what made Joshua such a great leader? You know, was it because he was some sort of master military, you know, technician? I mean, the plan for Jericho is let's walk around the city until the walls fall down. Like, really? That's not a strategy, you know? I mean, Joshua is not some sort of brilliant military you know, strategist. He's not a great politician. He's not even necessarily a great orator, a great preacher. You know what he is? Joshua is, is like, he's kind of like Forrest Gump, right? Where he's just plodding along, running across the country, doing what God told him to do. God said to do this, so I'm going to do it. I have his word. I have his instructions. I'm going to follow them. I'm not going to turn to the right. I'm not going to turn to the left. I'm not going to decide I have a better way or that we know something else. God says, go across the river, walk around the city of Jericho, and the walls are going to fall down. Let's do it. I know it seems crazy, seems insane. It's what God said to do. We're following his word. We're going to be obedient to his word. And he tells him three things. He says, don't depart from it. Okay, so I, I want you not to depart from it. Now there's the assumption with that that Joshua knows it. Because if you don't know it, then how do you know if you're departing from it? So there's just the underlying assumption that you're supposed to know God's word, that you've heard it, you understand it, you know it. And then he says, don't let it depart from your mouth. You know, I want you to be talking about it. I want it to be like salt and pepper in your speech. You know, so when you're discussing things, you're not talking about them as this separate forum from my word, but rather you're, you're talking about them understanding my word, and you're allowing my word to be involved in it. He says to meditate on it. And, and you know, meditation's a, a tough one, right, with our modern world. Understand, meditation is not the idea of, like, you know, shut your eyes, start humming, and empty your mind of everything you have, right? Biblical meditation is the idea that you take something and you kind of run it around in your head and you work out the application for it, Right? So when God tells you to do something, you know, he gives you a generic, don't murder. You know, you shouldn't murder other people. Okay, how does that work out practically in my life, you know? And God in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about the idea that it it really drills into your heart, right? So hatred really is just a root of murder. Lust is you know, a root of sexual sin. So even those things 
our sins. And so you start to meditate on God's instructions and how it applies in your life. And then he says, so you've done that. You, you, you kind of know it. You, you're you, talking about it. It's in your speech and what you, you're discussing. You've meditated on it, how, how it applies in your life. Now you've got to apply it. He says, follow what it says. You know, do what I've told you to do. 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul, giving instruction to a young pastor, tells him, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So God's Word and everything that he's supplied here is sufficient for you. You don't need more than this for when you're dealing with the, the things of salvation and your morality and, and your life in that sense. And he says that it'll make you complete. With the idea being that if you're not aligned with God's Word, and you're not allowing God's Word to instruct you, that you're incomplete. And we see that with Israel. When Israel doesn't listen to God's Word, I mean, just flip the book over, right? Go to Judges, and it's a train wreck. It's a disaster. So soon after this, and the victory here, they stray and they fall away into utter depravity. Because they left God and they left his word. So we're to be unified with Yahweh. We're to be unified with Yahweh's word. And then in verse 10, it says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days, you are to pass over this Jordan going to take possession of the land that Yahweh your God is giving to you to possess. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you, saying, Yahweh your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Wait a minute, what's going on? So they're going to cross over, but then he gives this extra instruction to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. So let me give you a little bit of, of background on what's happening here. As they're traveling around the wilderness, they come across this land that's just on the western side of the Jordan, and it's nice flat land, good for grazing cattle. And so the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, who are a bunch of Israelite cowboys with their herds and stuff, they're like, hey, this land is perfect for us. We want this land. Can we settle here? Uh, it's going to be perfect for our families. And Moses says, fine, you can settle here only after you've settled all the rest of the promised land. You know, Moses says, you're not going to stop here in this land on the western side of the Jordan, and then wave goodbye to the rest of Israel as they go off to fight battles 
in the promised land, and you say, we already got our land. Good luck, fellas. So Moses says, you can have the land, but first you're going to go with the rest of Israel and conquer the promised land. And so th- this is what Joshua is reminding them. And so we pick it back up in verse 14. He says, your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until Yahweh gives rest to your brothers and he has to you and they also take possession of the land that Yahweh your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. So he tells them, leave all your family behind, and I want you to go with the rest of Israel, all your fighting men, and you're going to go over first, and you're going to lead us into the promised land. In verse 16, it says, they answered Joshua, all that you've commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may Yahweh, your God, be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Now understand, he tells them, leave your family behind and all your fighting men come with the rest of Israel while we go conquer the land. So he's asking a huge leap of faith of the uh, Reubenites, Gadites, and half this tribe of Manasseh. Because he doesn't say, leave all your women and children and flock here, and some men to guard them. All the fighting men are going to come with us. You're going to leave all the women, children, and flock behind. I mean, this is like me driving down to southeast D.C., dropping my wife and children off on the corner at 10 o'clock at night and driving away and leaving them there and be like, I'll see you in a month, you know? Except they're leaving and are going to potentially be a year or more. Who knows? They don't know how long this is going to take. So they have to trust that God is going to protect their wives, their children, and their flocks. And they trust that God is going to do that for them. If they're faithful and they listen to God's word and they follow and they're unified with the rest of Israel. You see, this is the other thing, is when Israel separates, they have problems. When they abandon God and chase after other gods, when they don't listen to his word and decide they know better than him, or when they separate from each other and divide. A big one happens, right? They divide completely into two separate nations, the northern and the southern, Judah and Israel. Israel gets wiped out. Judah's the only one that's left eventually. As long as they remain unified, they find success. As long as they remain unified, they find blessings. 
but God doesn't ever abandon them. If we look at Hebrews again, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it's no different for the church today than it was for Israel back then. You know, hey, Reubenites, Gadites, Manasseh, you need to come with Israel to encourage them, to strengthen them. Hey, church, you strengthen each other. Don't abandon each other. Don't let each other be lost. Chase after each other. Encourage, build up. And, and you know, this is not unexpected, right? I, I mean, the church is not Israel. Israel is still Israel, but Israel is God's people, and the church is God's people. It's the same God that we're worshiping, so would the instructions and his motivations be different? No. He still expects us to be unified with him. He still expects us to listen to his word, to be unified with his word, and he expects us to be unified as a people strengthening each other, encouraging each other. So then we can jump ahead in time. And if we go to the end of the book, turn with me to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24, verse 29. So we started the book out kind of on a down note, right? Moses dies, you know, so one of the great leaders, one of the patriarchs dies. Not good, but we got Joshua. And so we end, and do we end on a high note? Well, let's see. Verse 29, after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance in Timnasherah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that Yahweh did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. And in piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Geba, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the old country of Ephraim. Close curtain, end of story. Wait, what? Like, we start with a death. Okay, low note, but we got Joshua, and it's exciting. And we end with not just one death, but three more funerals, right? Two deaths, and then also... We've been dragging somebody's bones with us this whole time, you're telling me? We've brought Joseph's bones from Egypt? Are you kidding? But stop and think about it again from the perspective of the Abrahamic covenant. So we go back to the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to promise you the land, 
offspring and blessing. Land, offspring, and blessing. They've become a large nation. We've got the offspring. They get a good chunk of the land. They never do fully possess the land. I think that still waits in the future for us. But they get a a large chunk of the land. And this is what happens. Joshua dies, and he is buried in the land that was promised to him. Joseph, who died in Egypt years ago, is buried in the land of promise. Eleazar dies, but he's buried in the land of promise. You know, so this is actually a good thing. I mean, yeah, it's sad they died, but they're buried in the land. They have the land or a portion of the land at this point. So we're seeing the fulfillment. But there was three parts, land, offspring, and blessing. And it wasn't just a blessing to Israel. He told Abram, I am going to bless not just you, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. What are we doing sitting here? We're the evidence of that blessing promised to Abram that God would keep his covenant. We are that evidence. We're the blessing. We've received that blessing. It was Jesus Christ who comes to remove sin, to die on the cross, that Messiah that had been promised all the way back in Genesis, even before the Abrahamic covenant, go back to the fall, the promise of a Messiah at that point comes through the line of Abram, and that blessing comes out to the entire world, and we're benefiting from that. You see, so the Abrahamic covenant was made with Abram, but it's just as important to us today just as important to us because of that blessing. And so you have to look at yourself and you have to say, all right, am I unified with God? Am I unified with his son, Jesus Christ, that promised blessing? Uh, Do I know his word? Do I listen to his word? Does his word inform my life, my thoughts, my actions, my relationships? And then lastly, do I have a church body, a local fellowship that I'm a part of where I can minister to people, they can minister to me, where I can encourage them, where I can strengthen them? Am I involved in that church body? Do I just show up each week, shake hands, sing, and go home and see everybody again next week? Or am I involved in these people's lives? Building them up, making sacrifices for them. If not, then you have to do an evaluation. Learn from Israel, who's not going to follow these commands, and you turn the page over from Joshua 24, and it goes completely sideways. Worst book in the Bible, ugliest book in the Bible. Which way do you want to go? Are you going to stay straight, or are you going to turn to the right and turn to the left? Joshua, Israel, they're an example for us. They went ahead of us. They're an example of what's to do and what not to do. But they're also there as an example of God's covenant-keeping, 
promise-keeping nature. We see that he was faithful to them, that he never abandons them. So when we place our faith in him, we can have hope and we can trust that he'll continue to be faithful to us. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer.